Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction, and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear, and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. This podcast is a Royfield Brown production. Find others on iTunes. All right. Yeah, I know. Ladies and gentlemen, please remain standing for the singing of our national anthem. That Britain is just a small island that no one pays attention to. A former colony won the right to determine its own destiny. Hello and welcome to Mid-Atlantic, the show where we look at the news and the views from one side of the Atlantic from the perspective of the other. I'm Royfield Brown, who sat with the sun on his back in San Francisco. Today we are joined by our friend and writer in Philadelphia, Nathaniel Popkin, and by the writer and wag that is Mick Wright in Norwich. Say hello, gentlemen. Hello, hello gentlemen. In a week that has seen... What a, what a rapturous hello that was. Uh, in a week that has seen the release of Bard... <laughs> Bob Woodward's book, Fear, on the Trump White House. We look at two feuds on either side of the Atlantic. Tonight, an epic clash between bitter rivals, the president and his predecessor. You need to vote because our democracy depends on it. Isn't this much more exciting than listening to President Obama? In Illinois, former President Obama coming off the sidelines for the first time since leaving office and taking on President Trump by name. It did not start with Donald Trump. He is a symptom, not the cause. Rebuking a brand of politics he says is steeped in fear and division. Mr. Trump responding in North Dakota. I watched it, but I fell asleep. I found he's very good. Very good for sleeping. The two leaders have been adversaries since Mr. Trump launched his political career by questioning whether Obama, the nation's first African-American president, was born in the U.S. A feud Mr. Obama revived today. The politics of division and resentment and paranoia has unfortunately found a home in the Republican Party. Embraced wild conspiracy theories like those surrounding Benghazi, or my birth certificate. Uh, Nathaniel, President Obama has broken a fundamental norm of American political life, that former presidents do not criticise the incumbent. Obama gave a speech this weekend, and he didn't really hold back on criticising the Trump administration and the Republican Party. He said, 
amongst other things, over the past few decades, the politics of division and resentment and paranoia has unfortunately found a home in the Republican Party. And he ended by saying, how hard can it be to criticise neo-Nazis? Why did he choose now as a time to speak up? Uh, I think he's chosen wisely. And I think he's also a student of history. You may think he's broken precedent in talking about an acting president in a certain way. But he's also a student of history. And there's one particular instance in American history with a president, a former president, emerging back on the scene in a kind of similar moment. And that was Ulysses S. Grant in uh, 1879. He had left the office, had basically disappeared from the public scene, actually traveled around the world for more than two years. And the political winds were kind of blowing in a certain way that demanded him to return to the scene and to do it in a certain way that would protect the advances that he had made as president, protect the gains made by the Civil War itself and by Reconstruction. And so and he had never campaigned before, starting right where you are in San Francisco. He enters, returns to the U.S., and works his way across the country campaigning. Never even when he campaigned for president, he never actually went out and campaigned. Here he was campaigning on the ideas that he wanted to promote and the gains that he wanted to protect. And I think Obama has found that exact same moment to walk back on the scene. People have been hungry to hear him and he's primed and ready. And now appears to be a fresh voice and he can galvanize people like no one else in the Democratic Party can. But there was somewhat of a time, there's somewhat of a gap between Grant leaving office and then him kind of re-emerging. President Obama has waited, what, 18, 18 months. Is it just a case of it's the midterms now, I'm going to speak up now, when the Democratic Party, at least the Democratic base, has been crying out for their, uh, for Obama, who's seen as, you know, if nothing else, he had the moral temperament of America to speak out before. Surely... Yes, there is the example of Grant, and he was trying to defend Reconstruction. But in modern times, in the tw- in the twentieth century, twenty first century, this is definitely unprecedented. No, sure, it's mate. not. It's not it's unprecedented. Not. Go on, tell me, mate. No, no, you don't even have to. You 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 have to go back just over ten years to, to Jimmy Carter calling the Bush administration the worst in history. The comment that he he walked back slightly afterwards, but. There's, there's loads of examples from the 20th century. Um, Eisenhower was publicly critical of Kennedy's domestic policies. The first, President Bush attacked Bill Clinton over Haiti. Uh, Nixon criticised the first President Bush. Trump has had this attitude of continuing to slam Obama in office. And that, that in itself changes the framework slightly because it, what tends to happen is that new presidents don't tend to talk about the last one that much. And also this whole notion of norms, we're not in a, an era of norms anymore. But I, I think this, I think the premise of this is sort of a, a bollocks, to be honest. Because, <laughs> and, and Trump never stopped campaigning, right? So basically whatever you know, norm uh, was in place around the way you talk about the presidency or way, the way that you perform the presidency, he's already blown out the water. I think Obama has shown incredible, incredible care and grace with the way he's faced the last 
two years. And I don't think he expected to proceed in the way he's doing it. I don't think it was planned, but I think it's necessary. Mick, I, I do agree with you, right, that fundamentally the way that I structured the question is actually incorrect. And really, Sorry, that was a bit mean. That no, 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 but, but actually, actually, you, 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 were, you were correct because the Eisenhower jibe at Kennedy about, you know, there's this kid in charge of American foreign policy uh, was, was a major thing when it, when it actually happened. And, and he did make that jibe. So this isn't uh, without precedent at all. But I think, uh, Nathaniel, you're right. It's the other way around. It's the fact that the, the present president is actually criticising his immediate predecessor. That is unusual to actually pointedly say that everything was wrong with America. It was in effect down to the last president. That is weird. And you're, and you're completely right. What Trump has not done is to stop campaigning. He's not realised that actually now he actually does have the bully pulpit. He does have uh, the power of the executive office behind him, but he's still running like some outsider candidate. Um, But who should be more happy that Obama is starting to campaign again? Should it be the Democrats or the Republicans, Nathaniel? Who do you think? Because the thing is about Obama, um, for some elements of the Republican base, they do take against him. Um, I think that he left with historically rather high approval ratings and probably that's only gone up. I haven't seen anything recently that sort of judges Americans' feelings toward him. But if you have um, a wreck of a man in charge for the last 18, 20 months, it's not hard to for anyone, I don't think, aside from maybe 20 to 25% of the, the electorate, to imagine a time when there was an intelligent, reasonable, articulate man at the head of the government. And so I think there's no question that this is a net positive for Democrats. I, think, I, don't, I, I don't think that it really affects the Republicans one way or the other. They've already sold their soul completely to protecting Donald Trump. That's what um, motivates voters, their voters to vote, um, are things that don't really have anything to do with Barack Obama anymore. Obamacare is not even a workable um, issue, really, for the Republicans, I saw in a recent poll, um, because it's seen uh, positively by uh, a larger majority of people. So uh, it's definitely a net positive for Obama, who's also been listening. And as we've seen over the last couple of days of him campaigning, um, has pushed himself to the left. So he's matching the the party's needs as well. But but is he, though? Is Obama sufficiently radical or no. sufficiently left, shall we say, for, you know, you've got uh, Cortez being um, elected, uh, winning her primary up in New York. She's somewhat to the left of Barack Obama. And didn't he basically kind of criticise um, the Democrats that kind of voted for her by saying that he's, they're pushing the party too far left. I didn't see that. Obama is a moderate. He's often was compared to centrist rights of Europe, much less than someone uh, on the left. So um, that's who he is. I mean, he's sort of fundamentally a, a moderate. His rhetoric, however, uh, since returning, and he even sort of talked about this directly, is responding to and reflecting the movement to the left on the part of many members of the party and those who have become most active. I doubt very much you would not see 
the value in backing someone like uh, Ocasio in New York or others who are sort of coming up from the grassroots and who are presenting Medicare for all uh, and, and those kinds of policies for the party. And the party is sort of moving along with it. I don't think he's set there in the middle. Uh, Mick, President Trump's plan for the Republicans in the midterms is basically just to turn it into a referendum on the 2016 election. Is this his only viable strategy? I don't even think it's his plan. I don't think he has a plan. I don't think he's thinking about it. I I, I think it's a real mistake to characterise the Trump administration as this ship being captained by Donald Trump. I don't see it that way. I don't think he thinks of, I don't think he's strategic in that way as a politician. He has, you know, he's not really a politician. He doesn't really know why he's there, I don't think. More and more it's very clear he's <laughs> he's, he's sort of bored and, and and kind of trapped there in a sense by his own ego. I, I he doesn't have a plan. It's very much the story being told by Steve Bannon in every interview that he's doing, uh, you know, although he's sort of semi-detached or almost totally detached from the White House now, of framing it as a notion of a of of a re-elect, of like the first re-elect. But uh, I don't think Trump has a plan, really. <laughs> so you know, that's all I can say about that. I think some some operators within the White House probably do, but if you look at the kind of stuff that's coming out of the Woodward book, it is a bit like a place full of people with their asses on fire and they're just all trying to like fight over who can stick their ass in the bath and put the fire out. So, okay, you are sat in Republican Party HQ. What would your strategy be to hold on to, to Congress uh, in, in the midterms? How exactly do you play the field? I guess you appeal to the you appeal to whatever you think is the base. Um, I don't know tax cuts, <laughs> probably promise more tax cuts. But appealing appealing to the base in effect turns off. If we use uh, Nathaniel's percentage on this, seventy five percent of the electorate. You know that even moderate Republicans um, yeah, are midterms, not excited midterms, by those. Go in midterms, like you're. you're well, what else will you do? You'll try and suppress voting amongst groups that you don't want to, you know, you'll try and basically make it seem like there's no point in voting to suppress voting in other groups. I mean, God, I don't know. I'm not an evil Republican um, uh, election strategist. strategist, but in all fairness, they seem, <laughs> you know, that there are plenty of them that are good at that. All right. Nathaniel, Hillary Clinton, Barack Obama are not on the ballot paper in November, but Trump is attacking them as if, they are. Why doesn't he just concentrate on his booming economy, which is doing the best it's ever done in 100 years, which is not factually correct? Why doesn't he talk about sunny uplands? Why does he have to try and go for bogeymen? Because he's mentally disturbed. I mean, he's mentally incapable of not thinking about the harm that's coming to him. And he sees those two people as those who have threatened him the most. He's not a normal human being. Um, by by definition, morally, and, I, and I say this tongue kind of firmly in cheek. Um, he, certainly there's no discipline. Okay. I, I think you're much, much safer on that ground. Um, so he's, he's a man of no discipline, and we've had the anonymous 
opinion piece in the New York Times. Um, do you believe that there is a not a deep state, but a steady state that is helping to correct the erratic course of the Trump White House? And let's just kind of end on your thoughts on that, Daniel. Yeah, I don't think there's a deep state. Uh, that's a that's a term that's only been put into play recently by Trump himself, trying to imagine that there are threats to him. There are probably threats to him from intelligence agencies because of his mafia ties and his shady business dealings for the last 40 years. So he knows that elements of the uh, intelligence community have been trying to get through his door for a long time. I think there are probably representatives of the military, uh, intelligence, national security apparatuses within the government who are trying to work in normal ways and promote normal American policies and reassure allies and try to lower the priority on some of Trump's uh, bugaboo arch conservative ideas that come right off of Fox News. But I don't think there's any kind of organized either conspiracy or organized resistance within the executive branch of the United States. I think there are there are hints at people trying to sort of slow things down or or work a little bit differently or distract him, but I don't think it's organized. And, um, you know, I think that if there are people who are in office who believe, who are part of the executive branch, who believe that he is incapable of doing his duties as president, then they should be pursuing legal means. That 25th Amendment. And on that note, uh, let's go to another bit of feud, which is on uh, the European side of the Atlantic. It's the infighting between Boris Johnson and Theresa May. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Hello and welcome to The Things That Made England. I'm Roy Phil Brown and with me I have... David Crowther of The History of England. It was the best of time. It was the worst of time. She was the people's princess. We shall fight on the beaches. Oh, hey, man. These are the things that made England. We shall fight on the landing ground. These are the things that made I England. I have a body but of a weak and feeble woman. 
These are the things that made England. And a king of England, too. These are the things that made England. Cry God for Harry! And these are the things that made England. England! And St. George! These are the things that made England. It gives wind in Churchill's sails to say we can continue to fight on. Well, there cannot be many more famous events in English history than 1066. It hurts, (laughs) even now. Because 1066 is important. Yeah. But there's aspects of modern British culture which I think get overlooked. So I'm proposing that this week we do Scar. For me, the English flag has in the past certainly become associated with factionalism and, well, hideous racist and far-right views. And it's turned into a thing of disunity and almost xenophobia. The idea of this show is to decide on what things that make England as she is. The country that, despite it all, we feel lucky to be part of. Every week, one of us, that is David and I, will pitch an idea to the other to be designated as one of the things that makes England distinctive. Go and join our shiny new Facebook site where once a month we will post a poll where, should you so desire, you can make your own very suggestions for applications to the I Made England Award. So, without more ado, let's do it. The clock is ticking for a deal with the EU. She's on warning from the trade union movement and most of all under intense pressure from inside her own party. So just how much longer can Theresa May stick it out? The latest attack from who else but Boris Johnson, accusing Theresa May of wrapping a suicide vest around Britain and handing the detonator to Brussels, comments that have enraged May's allies. Foreign Office Minister Alan Duncan said it was one of the most disgusting moments in modern British politics, adding, this is the political end of Boris Johnson. If it isn't now, I will make sure it is later. Hashtag never fit to govern. Uh, Mick, in Boris Johnson's Telegraph article, he compared the Prime Minister's checkers deal to a wrapped suicide vest around the British Constitution. And he said that it handed a detonator to Brussels. This article has seen almost unprecedented Tory infighting. Mick, should we just rub our hands with glee and get the popcorn out and watch as the Tory party implodes? Uh, um, not really, I guess. I don't know, because it, the Labour Party are still doing the same to the, to each other. This isn't the first time that there's been this kind of uh, stuff around Boris. And obviously, you've got the, the infidelity stuff doing the rounds. But there's a big sense, and I think it's probably true, that uh, Boris is probably, in a way, happy enough to get that out off his plate because it doesn't hasn't really affected his standing amongst the membership of the Tory party and you've got people like Jacob Rees-Mogg on TV sort of still strongly defending Boris or you know kind of saying well this is private life so I don't know I think I think we've still got a, a prime minister who's sort of sleepwalking through her premiership and I wouldn't clap and cheer particularly because I still think there's a very strong chance that Boris Johnson ends up in number 10. And then we've got two dangerous blondes, uh, <laughs> you know, on, on either side. Yeah, and, I would say, you know, that's an issue. Reckless people. Uh, I would say the same thing from the U.S., from the experience of the U.S. I mean, the, the moment that Antonin Scalia died, I celebrated. It seemed to be a moment in which... You could see the, the sort of um, arch right wing period of our history 
falling apart, that what seemed an obvious situation that a Democrat was going to win the presidency and would continue the sort of stability of the Obama era and finally get a hold of the Supreme Court so that many other things could be possible, such as getting money out of politics. Well, it went the exact opposite of the way that it felt like it might in that moment. And so I'd caution against getting the popcorn out. I think, Mick, you were, seems like that's what you're thinking, like by imagining that there's a real chance that Johnson could become prime minister. I think that's true. I watched um, a morning kind of talk show thing this morning on um, uh, on Channel 5 in the UK, and, and Jacob Rees-Mogg was on uh, the ultra-right Tory backbencher who's leading the um, Brexiteer funk faction of, of the Tory party. And he, he was on there, and the number of callers that of all classes and, and um, mixture of men and women who were who were calling in to say how much they supported and liked Rees-Mogg, who is yeah. a a palpably unpleasant figure screams to me that the support within the country, which I see out here, I mean, I live in the regions and, and, you know, I, I live in Norfolk, which is a fairly conservative County. People still really like Boris Westminster analysis by the political journalist keeps implying, Oh, this time it'll be done for Boris. But the thing is when you've created the sort of carapace of, recklessness and cartoonishness i think the benefit of it is that stuff like this just sort of bounces off Mm. him people expect it no i I think you're right and it's something which ben shapiro keeps on saying about trump is that all i listen to i listen to him and and every now and then mick he says something (laughs) which illuminates the reasons why people on the opposite side to me politically think the way that they do and what he says about trump which is ditto the same for johnson i believe is that everything is already baked in people know that trump is a liar people know that he's incredibly insincere they know he just reacts on the spot he's not a strategic thinker if you take all that on board and you support him, everything will just bounce off him. And it's well, the that, same with the same with Boris Johnson. That it's, the, it's actually yes. Sorry, the fundamental gone. challenge of our time is is that we've situated these people, and they're not just those two, not just Boris or Trump, who are fundamentally present untruths. And it's very hard to to get rid of that state of affairs. You know, it's it's. How do you do it? How do how do you overcome the fact that it the truth is itself so called into question? And and I think that's the challenge in mm. both cases. Yeah, absolutely. I think you're know, spot on. And I, I think the more dangerous thing about Boris is well, a I hate calling him Boris. I prefer to call him Johnson or Boris Johnson because the Boris character is in itself like a mononym is a really useful thing for a politician. It's sort of it's quite a powerful thing. But the trouble with Boris is Boris isn't stupid. Boris might be reckless, and Boris is definitely lazy, but he's not stupid. Uh, you, you know, contrary, compared to obviously, Trump is not an intelligent man, and more so, it seems that Trump has become less intelligent over the years. Uh, you know, he actually used to use multi-syllable words in the past, and has become more um, uh, moronic over time. Johnson, you know, is a man of who is reckless, but also went to Oxford. Is is capable but chooses to use his education for sort of malfeasant ends, which is which is sort of almost more frightening in a way. 
I, th- I think you're um, definitely onto something there, Mick. Um, the backbench Tory Nadine Doris, who is a, a populist herself, has defended Johnson in the face of what she said was vitriol, saying that his critics were terrified of his popular appeal, which is kind of what really what we're kind of like talking about here. Mick, has Johnson taken his campaign to be the next Tory leader outside of the House of Parliament? Because the rump of Tory MPs are not happy with the way that he's conducting himself. This is playing to, to use an American expression, the base, isn't it? This is not for consumption in the House of Parliament. It is playing to the base, but the thing is, but I think he's also playing to the ERG and playing to the constituency who who listen quite closely to, oddly, to Jacob Rees-Mogg, who's, who's not an MP of much of long standing, really. He's a fairly inexperienced backbench MP. But anyway, the point being, I think the ERG would come on side for Boris. I think that there are some movements in that direction. I think things can happen with Brexit or, or the failure to get Brexit to happen in the way they want it to. That could uh, be very useful for him. And those are the MPs that will come on side for him. Um, I think Goval probably end up supporting Boris again, even though he stabbed Boris in the back. I mean, Michael Gove is, you know, about one of the most disingenuous people in, in the world. So, yeah, I, I think you're right. He's playing to the base. But look, in the end, if the Tory party think Boris is the person we need to win elections, they are a ruthless party and they will, much like the Republicans getting in line behind Trump when they saw the wind, the way the wind was blowing. In, yeah, I think um, these things are contagious. Thing. You know, it's like it's in the air. I've been reading about the Tory, what the Tories are trying to do, and it appears that they're learning directly from the Republican playbook. Even the the paper that was promoted today, suggesting that um, Brexit will create uh, incredible economic growth, get rid of tariffs, get rid of lower taxes. I mean, even to that extent, the knee jerk movement towards free markets, unfettered free markets, and lower taxes as a way to convince voters. It's also part of the Republican playbook. Mm. Mick, you said that uh, the the Tories are a ruthless party and they just want to win elections. And I think historically you cannot <laughs> uh, disagree with a syllable uh, of that. But is this about winning an election or getting us to Brexit? That the Tory um... party wants the most Brexiteer of Brexiteers for March 29th to make sure that we exit and that actually to hell with the election afterwards. Yeah, I mean, there's a whole kamikaze faction of that party led by Rees-Mogg, who who believed that kind of thing. But they're they're not the majority of that party. And I I think... How much is that that ERG, Brexiteer faction, is the tail wagging the dog? Because there's a lot of people... It's like 80 It's like 80 it's ATMPs. It's a big enough problem for the chief whip. If they if if they rebel, like there are about ATMPs who are who are willing to rebel, that's that's a significant issue. If I was the chief whip, I I wouldn't be relying on the fact that relying on the idea that uh, I'm going to get enough Labour MPs to uh, save my ass in that case. Um, were we not so wedded to the first past the post system? If we lived in a if we they hadn't bungled the electoral reform referendum uh, a good few years back now, we would be in a much better situation because the trouble is 
we've got, you know, the Lib Dems are a busted flush. The Labour Party can't get its ducks in a row and is fighting with itself. And so is the Tory party. So I, I don't really know how they're going to fix the Brexit issue or fix any of the other issues we've got because you, because you're, this this party infighting is going to keep continuing, and and that's it's really damaging for for all of us because we can't get stability. There's no stability. It's anymore. a familiar feeling. Yeah, exactly. Okay, prediction for you, Mister Wright, uh, and then one for you, Mister Popkin. End of March. Who's going to be the British Prime Minister? End of March, two thousand and nineteen. Uh, Boris Johnson or Jeremy Corbyn. By March 2019, okay? I can give you an explanation of why, but... Well, what about... Can we do a follow-up prediction about uh, how it's going to play out in the next... um, Well, I guess that is... In the lead-up to uh, the next Prime Minister, the Brexit issue has to be resolved, right? Well, it's all... Well, no, not necessarily, but... Well, it's going to be baked in before, though. That's the thing. That if it looks like we're going to crash out without any deal, which with each day is looking more likely because Theresa May said that the deal would be done by October. That's not going to happen. There's going to be major ructions in British politics before you even get to I think there are four things that could happen. Okay. Take us through those four things. Four things that that could happen. Um, I'm trying to do it in order of how unlikely I think they are. I don't think no deal is going to happen. I don't think no deal will happen because I think if it continues to look like we're going towards a no deal, one of the three other things will happen. Either uh, there are manoeuvres in the Tory party after the party conference is going to be critical for Theresa May. If it goes terribly, then they are going to push to get her out and there will be a leadership election. If there's a leadership election, I wonder how a new prime minister can justify being prime minister without an election particularly with what is a minority government. And you've got to factor in that things are going to get more difficult in Northern Ireland. So either there's a leadership election. If there's a leadership election, I think potentially it's uh, Boris wins it, uh, although it could be someone like Jeremy Hunt. Um, And then, or post the conference, more ructions happen and Theresa May feels that she has to go to the country again, which Labour would would agree to, and she loses that election. Okay, let, let, let's just hold, hold that, because I think you paint some really plausible scenarios, and I think you are right. If we're barreling towards kind of a no deal and the Tory party have a coup, there is no way morally that the Conservative Party can uh, really present a no deal scenario without going back to the people. And then like it's that. a referendum. And, and right? then it's a referendum in anything but name. And I think there's I think there's momentum in the country as well for a, sorry to use a, a, a word that's now uh, specifically party political, but there is some momentum in the country now as well, I think, for moving towards the potential of a, a second referendum. Yeah. I think you might even, I, I wouldn't be surprised if Labour post-conference decided to switch their position and come strongly out for a second referendum. I think they've been keeping their powder dry on that, thinking that that's like a tactical advantage. But we've had uh, major unions now basically kind of back that, haven't we? Which is a blow to court. That's what I'm saying. Now the unions, who who are the ones where they get the money from, well, I mean, and mass, they've got a mass mass membership now as well. I think that could actually happen. I think people have been acting as if it, there's no chance, but I really think it could happen. All right. Um, if I'm a Tory grandee, yeah. 
right? And and I look at the Tory party conference and, and I look at the Tory party conference and it goes badly for Theresa May and the 1922 committee basically say, Theresa, your time is up. Boris Johnson throws his hat into the ring. He wants to be uh, the leader of the, of the Tory party. Surely Javid is going to do that as well, isn't he? And Javid is going to come out way ahead on on votes o- over over Boris. Then uh, what do you do? Javid has got three times the votes of Johnson with Tory MPs. Yes, the constitution then says then you take it out to the constituencies. But wouldn't that just be extra uh, infighting at a time when we're barreling towards at least either a no deal scenario or a scenario whereby uh, Brexiteers are massively unhappy with the deal that's been done. So you have fighting yeah, on probably. all corners of, you know, the British political system. You wouldn't want that. Yeah, Johnson definitely. would be eased out the door, surely. No. And if it went out to the party, the party are still basically um, heavily fans. racist. They're, no, also, they're, they're, they're replete with elderly racists. I, I don't think they, <laughs> they, they, they can tolerate the Asian man being Home Secretary, but I don't think they'd let him be Prime Minister. Don't get out the popcorn, so, you though, know. is all I'm saying. Because okay. All, <laughs> all right, all right. And, which is exactly what Obama said. He said, you know, you've got to get out there and vote. All right, so, um, Nathaniel, we're just going to end, end with you. Prediction. Um, will Trump stand in 2020? And if he does, will he have a challenger from within the ranks of the Republican Party? Uh, I think there's several steps. I I don't think I can offer a real prediction on that because there's so many potential steps that are unknown. I mean, that's the thing about this this period. There's so many paths which lead to roadblocks or paths that lead to certain things following one from the other. You know, you could go from uh, a blue wave in the election to uh, the emboldened party, then um, holding hearings and actually impeaching the president. That um, would then depend on what happens in the election in the Senate. Um, And that's hard to tell, although it seems somewhat likely the Republicans would hold, in which case, the Democrats probably would not pursue impeachment. Um, on the other hand, uh, something uh, such as the, right now it appears that Jeff, Jeff Sessions, the attorney general, um, probably lied to Congress under oath. The Democrats could push that issue and get him further in trouble and more likely to be removed as attorney general, which is what Trump wants. And then you might have someone in charge, uh, someone in charge of the Justice Department who would um, not protect the Mueller investigations. There's so many paths that this can take. My gut tells me to, or well, let me say this differently, my head, my now seasoned and battered head tells me not to listen to my gut, which says there's no way that the Republican nominee for president in 2020 is Donald J. Trump. I've been wrong on on him before, and I, I now can see the way in which he survives. Uh, so it's really hard to say. I, I think that the, the great thing about the Mueller investigation is that it goes, it's going very 
deep into not just um, the campaign and the Russia connections, <clears throat> but but really Trump's apparatus in business, which is deeply, deeply connected to the mafia and money laundering and, and the like. And so if you could really take him out on those kinds of less political charges, you might actually be able to get past it. And then each day that another book or another thing comes out, it slowly does begin to weaken the connection between the party who has been complicit in backing him and, and Trump. Like a, a week ago, it appeared that the, that the Woodward book and the op-ed were, were, were going to be, you know, were appeared to be another step in which there were, and you could sort of read some of the tea leaves and see the way in which it was affecting a kind of slight pull away from the president on part of, on the part of some people within the party. Now, more time goes by, nothing happens, but I think it's a slow process. And because it's a slow process that's so fraught with so many different possibilities, including things like voter suppression, um, who knows? But you know, as well, if I, I think if there was a, I, I don't know anything, but I think if there's any, any, or any, uh, group in the world that is um, more likely to fall over and shut their own dick in a car door. It's the democratic party. I could, I do, you know, I, I still, I'm still of the mind. Like I saw yesterday people, people touting around Tim Kaine as a potential 2020 nominee. And you just go, Oh, the thrilling vice presidential nominee that, you know, I, 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 I'm willing to bet that, that they don't end up caponing Trump. I just, I just have this sick feeling that somehow he slips through the net, and uh, and he ends up nominee, and he gets reelected. I could see it of happening. Course. I really can. I think there's, a, there's so much wishful thinking in. We, going we all could, and it's it's extraordinarily hard to sort of not play into the wishful thinking. I, I tried to stop reading all analytic articles that were speculative because they're all packed in with wishful thinking. So that's why I say it's so impossible to know. Clearly the man is a survivor. Clearly the man has some kind of sway over a certain kind of American. I believe you described uh, that person well in regard to the Tory party in the UK. And then we don't know what kind of sort of events might happen, terrorism or in domestic terrorism or mass shootings. You know, it's just hard to know. We live in uh, exceptionally unstable moment, and, and I, th- I think it, and it's something of a large event, um, you know, a, a a real crisis event. People will assume, oh, well, he'll do badly in that, so that'll lead him to not win the next election. But September the eleventh probably got Bush reelected. Oh, so, well, yeah, no, never, that, that's never count a fact. Up, you know, the, the, the idea that. Um, um, that um, Tory MPs or whoever uh, were saying that's it for for Johnson after you said this about the suicide bomb, baloney! Like, never write in a political obituary of someone with still so much support. No way. And on that uh, note, 
saying that, uh, in effect, equating Trump and Johnson to political cockroaches, you know, in the aftermath of a nuclear winter, they're still around. We're going to go on to our takeaways of the last seven days. So it's that time where we put politics and political rancor to one side and we talk about something which has lifted our spirits in the last seven days. Uh, Mick Wright over in sunny Norwich, tell us about um, your takeaway. Well, what was my takeaway? Oh, because I had a good one, but now it's, it's past. It's, it's gone from my mind. What was it? Oh, I know what it was. I know what it was. So I have got back into John Prine um, I listen, and I've been listening to his records again and it's sort of quite... There's something amazing about looking at an artist who has been writing in these incredible songs for so many years and then he, he had these serious health problems and he had this throat cancer that, you know, he's totally changed his voice and he didn't know he was still going to be able to sing. And then he's put this record out this year called The Tree of Forgiveness. And it's as good as anything he's ever put out. And for someone who, you know, is a creator of, of art, like I am, or, you know, makes things, it's kind of, it's quite amazing to see a man in, you know, in his 70s producing this great work still and and even after such um you know uh, personal uh stress and struggle so i guess you know that's quite uh, that makes me feel quite upbeat in an otherwise not upbeat world so if someone's going to get into his work where would you recommend that they start uh start with the so the song sam stone which is about uh, a man coming back from a war which we know which is it's is sort of it's Vietnam, but it could be any war and uh, becoming addicted to heroin. It's a, it's a brilliant song, but he also wrote a lot of upbeat songs. But that's probably the song that uh, I would play to most people just to illustrate like what a brilliant um, singer and songwriter is. But this new stuff is great as well. Um, I'll whack him on the Spotify as soon as we finish the show. Um, my takeaway um, of the last seven days is it's hardly a surprise to anyone who's into American sport, but... Uh, hopefully I'm pronouncing his name correctly, but Shaquem Griffin. Um, British folks uh, probably will not be aware that he is um, a gentleman who's a, a linebacker for the Seattle Seahawks, and his twin brother already plays for the Seattle, for the for the Seahawks. The thing is about this guy is that he only has one hand. At the age of four. He actually had his hand amputated because he was born with a congenital defect and it was causing him a lot of pain. I saw an ESPN uh, documentary about him about six months ago or so, saying that he was going to try, that he was going to be a draft pick for for the NFL. And you can't help but love this guy's story. Here is somebody who is disabled and he is overcome every hurdle barrier brick wall and he's a professional sportsman and i am this season a seattle seahawks fan in part you know i still love my beloved cleveland browns who drew at the weekend sorry tied i'm in america but this is just a heartwarming story and it's the type of story that i think you get precious little of number one in sport full stop but these kind of heartwarming stories you don't really kind of get i don't think in american sport especially in something like the nfl which is this big money making churn machine that you have uh, these two twin brothers that 
play for the same team, but one of them is minus a hand. And there is no uh, dispensation put towards him. He's playing in a ruthless professional sport and he's at the top of his game. He runs fast, he tackles, and he manages to do it at a disadvantage that all the other players don't have. He only has one hand. And it's just a wonderful, wonderful story. And Hollywood must already have the the rights of this story. It's just a something, it's the most Disney story going in sport, but it's real. And uh, Shaquem Griffin, uh, you know, what a guy and just what a story. So that's my takeaway of the last seven days. Now, Nathaniel Popkin, we've given you a good 10 minutes to scramble in your brain and think of something. Yeah, so so hit us with something, time, lift uh, our spirits. I, I do have something I think we could talk about. And, you know, so I'll start off with the sort of dark side of it as I think that earlier this week, um, I think it was in Botswana, though I need to check that. Um, there was a mass slaughter of elephants for their tusks, of course, and um, 80 of them. And this was in a place that has typically been protected, um, but which um, changes in the government had um, resulted in uh, now a lack of protection for the uh, for all the animals in a particular national park. And so, you know, we have the, one of the ways in which the world is currently so unstable is the sort of endless assault on living things in all different kinds of ways, right? And, but there are these very violent extraction interests all around the world who will do anything to make some money extracting resources from, from the earth and ivory is one of them. Uh, and I've been reading recently, and there's a piece uh, actually in today's New York Times uh, about um, a set of elephants that have been um, observed uh, quite a lot more recently. And their story uh, takes place in Mozambique. Mm-hmm. Um, but I don't think this is the only group of elephants that through, I think, um, maybe some luck and perhaps eventually natural selection and the dynamic process of evolution, some elephants will be... Large elephant populations may survive because they do not have tusks. And so that's an extraordinary thing. I think that oftentimes we think that Nature itself is being, you know, is up against the ropes in all possible ways. Um, and in, but in fact, it's a such a dynamic, iterative thing. This world of microbes and bacteria and fungus and large fauna like elephants and um, people and what they do and all of this mixing together, we don't always know how it's going to work out. And sometimes. It works out well, and it could just be that elephants are figuring out a way to survive as a kind of large fauna on, in the world. And uh, they're such remarkable beings that I hope that uh, this is the case. And maybe uh, in some sense or the other, human beings could aid the process by which uh, tuskless Elephants are naturally selected and produce more frequently. Wow. Uh, Wouldn't that be a thing? Wouldn't that be a thing? Like a lot of people. I'm I'm hardly unique in this. 
but there is something about the majesty the nobility just the innate intelligence of those creatures which i've always always been struck by and and i know we've all seen the pictures you know the videos of them mourning uh, the loss of somebody from their herd and you know touching the bones how the hell in this day and age can we be so callous with this just beautiful beautiful creature um, hopefully genetics and nature will help save them from ourselves uh, folks uh, that has been us this has been mid-atlantic show it's good to have our old writer nathaniel popkin on the show hopefully we'll have you again uh, soon nathaniel excellent it's a lot of fun to be here cool um if people want to catch up with you and your works and i must admit i reread your book ju- just last week actually so um where can i find you on social media sir oh um often enough on twitter at nathaniel popkin that's the easiest good 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 and how about you mick what do you what, what are you up to at the moment and where can people find you um writing things for money yeah, if you want me to write things for money um, I'm on uh, Twitter at Broken Bottle Boy. Um, I saw you took a deep dive into the world of Pornhub for the purposes of work and research. This is true. Um, yes. Very entertaining and illuminating article, sir. I, I really enjoyed it. Yeah, it's a weird one. There's another weird one coming out as we record today, so that'll be out tomorrow. Tomorrow, hopefully, when this is out as well. So, yes, grand. Brilliant. And of course, you can catch up with me on social media, uh, though there's little point unless you want to see pictures of my uh, my mum and dad. Uh, but I am at Roy Fields with R-O-I-F-I-E-L-D. That has been us. That has been Mid-Atlantic Show. Don't forget, folks, do the right thing and, and be nice. Toodle Pip, see you all again soon. Bye-bye. Ciao. Cool. And I'll work through the show. Okay. See you, John. Song I wrote a couple of years ago uh, after I got out of the army. <coughs> Sam Stone came home to his wife and family after serving in the conflict overseas. And the time that he served had shattered all his nerves. Left a little shrapnel in his name But the morphine eased the pain And the grass grew round his brain And gave him all the confidence he lacked With a purple heart and a monkey on his back There's a hole in daddy's arm where all the money goes Jesus Christ died for nothing I suppose Little pitchers have big ears Don't stop to count the years Sweet songs never last too long on broken radios Want flexibility? Take yoga. Want flexibility with your health insurance? Check out United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget friendly medical, dental, and vision coverage that may be right for you. More at uh1.com.
When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program.